Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the show where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about how they got where they are, what makes them tick, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion, so let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the pod. If you are new, hello. Welcome. My name is Katie Quinn. I am a video journalist, food enthusiast. I'm a YouTuber, a cookbook author. And this podcast is interviews with entrepreneurs and fellow creatives who I feel very inspired by. It is hard to believe that we are already in August of this year. We're on episode 23 of the pod. That is crazy. Super, super cool. Almost two dozen. Well, actually two dozen if you consider the pilot episode a part of that. Anywho, I have been loving doing the pod. I hope that you have enjoyed it too. I do want to update you guys and let you know that I will be taking a short hiatus. I've got a lot of travel coming up, a lot of projects. I'm going to take up a month hiatus. I'm going to be doing some interviews in that month though. I'm going to the States uh, as a part of my travels and Italy, and I will be interviewing some really, really fantastic guests while I'm out and about. So you have a lot to look forward to from this podcast stream. If you are subscribed to the Keep It Quirky podcast, then when I upload the next pod, it will automatically jump in your podcast feed. So I highly suggest that you do subscribe if you have not on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, all of the places. And thanks. Sam Galsworthy was working for a brewery in London when he was sent to the U.S. to build the brand over there. That's when he saw the microbreweries, boutique wineries, coffee roasteries, and chocolatiers. And he was really struck by this artisanal movement happening in the States. And so he took that fascination and passion, and he teamed up with his buddy Fairfax Hall to found Sipsmith Gin. We're the first copper distillery in London for 200 years. There's a little bit of Sam talking to show you, A, what a great voice he has, right? (laughs) And B, that these guys were really doing something different over here. Sipsmith is the first copper distillery to open within London city limits in nearly two centuries. Even now, it's one of only four gin distilleries located within in the city limits. They have essentially created a category as they're enlivening a landscape. In this episode, Sam and I talk about what's behind making things small batch, how Sipsmith changed laws and changed the gin game, a genaissance as he calls it, the different phases he's gone through of entrepreneurialism, the grit it takes to be an entrepreneur, and not riding the trends, but rather sailing through them. So let's hop right into my conversation with Sam. Here he is talking about the birth of Sipsmith. The story of Sipsmith really began with me working for a local brewery here, Fuller's, and they moved me over to the United States. And it was there that I witnessed this sort of groundswell of creativity and craftsmanship and how um, appealing it was that, you know, people were making things by hand in small batches and the beauty and the quality and everything about it was just so resonative. It was just so empowering. And and I ran around the U.S. and um, saw sort of microbreweries, brew pubs, craft distilleries, boutique wineries, chocolatiers, coffee roasteries. I mean, you know, there was a very real seismic movement going on with people making things again. And actually, when you 
as I did, looked back from the US shores to UK and London and having grown up on gin from, frankly, an inappropriately <laughs> young age, you know, you, you, you couldn't help but notice what the London landscape looked like, which was, frankly, quite disappointing. You know, the home of gin is here in London. It, you know, it's one of the global capitals of the world, certainly that of the UK, the home of gin, and it only had one other distillery of copper, you know, making gin, uh, and that was set up in 1820, and that was beef eating. Wow. And so, you know, when you thought it, it's in its heyday, London had probably 50, 60, you know, giant brands, you know, that have all since then uh, uh, crumbled, folded, moved, emerged, whatever. Beefeater in 1820 was the last of those gin distilleries to, to establish itself in London and, and the last to remain. And, and, and we just thought this is not good enough. And actually, consumers wanted choice. Consumers wanted stories in the same way that they were resonating with the American movement. You know, we just thought, gosh, if we presented the right concept the right uh, uh, accessibility and sense of authenticity and transparency. Okay, so you had the idea, but there was an actual law preventing you from moving forward with it. There was a law that was in our way that basically said you couldn't own a pot still that was smaller than 18 hectolitres. And that was a law that dated back to around about the early 1800s when they were trying to protect against moonshine operators and small distillers. And, you know, there are many different hospital records that show how many people died of alcohol related diseases. So there was little wonder the government did as much as they could to sort of protect consumers from themselves and introduced a series of different gin acts. And and one of them was, in fact, around the size of the pot still that you could uh, uh, operate from. And anything smaller than 18 hectolitres was deemed to be movable from a visiting government officer. So long story short, we we, we ended up convincing members of parliament, our local trade associations and other influential people in in London to help us influence a change in the law. And that change in the law took place in 07, I think, in the Finance Act, uh, where they removed the issue and the clause around owning a pot still for smaller than 18 hectares. So it allowed us to, to set up and we capitalized and became the first distillery for 200 years. I mean, that's kind of epic. You are the first in 200 years in the city that, that many people associate with gin. Well, that's right. And actually, uh, uh, and we're very proud of that of that legacy. And I think this wasn't just about setting up Sipsmith. I mean, this really was about, as I mentioned, about creating a category and, and, and a landscape and an enlivening a landscape of premium gin. And actually, because when you looked, we were the 12th gin distillery registered in the United Kingdom in 2009. Now, there are over 400. Wow. 400 plus. Okay, so trendsetter is... (laughs) Distilleries licensed to open up this year. So we're talking 400 and 450 by this time in a year. You know, uh, that's a movement. Yes. But how how would you define this movement then? Is it a gin movement or is it a back to the roots movement? What kind of a renaissance is it? Well, it's a genaissance. It's not a a renaissance, it's a genaissance. (laughs) I think it's a fascinating one because it captures so much the sort of, you know, the modern day movement where people... People are trying to be very expressive and using lots of different ingredients and trying to use sources and methodologies. And they're, they're, they're introducing lots of different things that the old school wouldn't have done. Um, if you're a sipsmith, and there are a handful of others that are not dissimilar to us that you know actually want to celebrate the old school way of making it. So sipsmith, we're always talking about this is a gin that is made the way gin used to be made and the way we think it should be made. That's a little bit more sort of classically minded you know, concept. But actually what's wonderful, the era that we're we're in the 21st century and all the different movements and pioneerism that's taking place. Actually, you know, there's people being some producing some pretty hyper different 
uh, expressive stuff that are, you, you either love it or you don't. But, you know, that is what is intriguing people to this extraordinary category that is just now, I think, the second largest. It's just become the second largest category in the UK. And it's predicted in a year's time to now be the number one spirits category in the UK in a couple of years or something like that. I mean, you know, from nowhere, from nothing. It's growing at 40% a year. I mean, it's it's breathtaking growth. Do you think that you could have been at the forefront of it had you not had previous beverage experience at Fuller's, had you not seen it kind of happening in the States? Was it kind of what was the magical concoction that allowed you and Fairfax and let's bring in Fairfax into this conversation too, um, that, that allowed you guys to really make the push? Yes. I mean, we, you know, we both, in fact, all three of us. So there's three of us that really, you know, had it. Fairfax and I sort of had the idea. He and I grew up together in Cornwall. Cornwall. We're, we're, you know, great, great mates growing up and family, friends and all that. Uh, I mean, we, we sort of jointly had the idea living in the US. He was, he was on his way to work at Diageo and uh, doing an MBA over there and um, uh, and we had had this idea but we were both sort of establishing ourselves in the drinks industry now our third partner Jared Brown had sort of was sort of born into the industry and and I think his great-grandfather was one of the original brewers at Anheuser-Busch and he was brewing beer and distilling from you know some crazy age it's in his blood yeah very much in his blood (laughs) and we're very blessed to have him our backgrounds are all in the industry so we knew the nuances of it mine from you know sales marketing Fairfax from finance and operations Jared from the creativity and the sort of the the mastery of, of of craftsmanship from 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 that point of view, so I think we all brought relatively complementary, you know, skills and disciplines to uh, an enterprise that really needed it. Could we have got it away without it? We couldn't without Jared. Um, but I think you know, in this industry, sometimes a really fresh perspective can can cast quite an interesting light. So, and actually, the team that we have here at Sipsmith is actually made up of a lot of people that have never been in the drinks industry. So, while we might have done, I think largely a lot of where we are today is down to the. F- phenomenal team behind us, most of whom have never been in the drinks industry. So um, there's a nice balance within the team. Have you always thought that you would be an entrepreneur? I think I was always uh, frustrated under authority. (laughs) I was a bit of a a rebel and, uh, you know, I was sort of on the edge of being expelled many times from school. I didn't finish university. Uh, I was nowhere near an A-grade student in any you know, shape or form. I always had a dream that I would sort of try to create something, but it was a dream and it was always batted away and, and dampened by friends and family. I thought, you're never going to, you know, you've not got what it takes. But actually, I think what entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurship takes is is grit. I mean, it's absolute just hardened resilience, um, uh, which is probably a formula that looks like uh, um, perseverance, determination, and passion. I think those are probably the three formulas which I brought in in spades to this. It's not a mental discipline. It wasn't, you know, an ability to process numbers, it, you know, the commercialization, you know, sales from where I really come from is something that happens very naturally if you believe in something wholeheartedly and someone can look you in the eyes and they thoroughly believe what it is that you're believing in and, and therefore there's a trust element that's bridged and, and away you go. And I think what lies behind that is the same you know, and that you need the structure of commercialization and operations and systems to a degree. I hate that word, but, <laughs> you know, uh, and entrepreneurs don't like systems and processes. You know, it is the, the, the greatest dampener of creativity. But at some point, and that's the, sort of the point that we're, we're, we're at now, that, you know, it is vital for, for, for growth. But, um, but sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying, you know, I, I, 
I yearned to be away from authority and under, under my own sort of stewardship. You mentioned creativity. So what is the, do you consider yourself creative? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I mean, I, I consider myself creative. I don't know about my wife or my <laughs> friends and family, but, you know, I think certainly I'm very imaginative. Uh, I really am a, I'm a dreamer and I'm very expressive and wear my heart on my sleeve. And, you know, I get my energy, I source my energy from sort of people and culture and seeing things. Those are my sources of energy. And I think that's what powers me forward. And I think, uh, uh, you know, in some of the work that I do, you can see quite a creative. Can I paint and sketch? Forget it. No, I absolutely can't. But yeah, so I, it's kind of like, how do you define creativity? Well, exactly. You know, yeah. I, mean, I think it's probably quite a sort of controversial point for some people. But I think, um, yeah, when it comes to arts, no, forget it. You know, I love singing. I love, you know, making a fool of myself on stage and that. But, you know, that form of creativity where the sort of the body is, is being creative and, and you're using different parts of, of the physical to, to create rather than the hand to draw or paint or sketch or take photos, then, then, then yes. But I, I, I know what I like and I see and I can bring something to life. Um, and that's important in running your business. This actually makes me think of the theory of discoverability versus advertising, which is what Sip Smith has done. This is how you've grown. And to me, it's really fascinating because it seems to be anti everything you hear about how to grow a business, right? Get it out there, like ad advertise, advertise everywhere. And like now that we have Facebook ads and Google ads and you guys eschewed that from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, bottom line, I'll be, you know, cars on the table. We didn't have any money. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that type of activity is bloody expensive. Um, but I think, the you know, the way we've always gone about it is is narrow and deep. So, you know, make, you know, rather than broad and shallow, it's narrow and deep. And it's about intimate engagements with people that have an expectation that you, you, you then you know, over-deliver against uh, and and whether that is events that we do uh, as in host or events that we attend. Life is so much richer when you discover it yourself. Let, let's let's go in deeper with fewer people and really win them over as advocates and, and have them, you know, go out having discovered the brand and all of our nuances and everything we represent and then go into sort of preach about it. And and that's that's really the, 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 the journey we've gone on now. You know, we're we're coming up to our tenth year anniversary. We're you know, we're not a, a small brand now in the UK that we, that we used to be, and I think that model of narrow and deep has had to shift. We, we we haven't let go of it completely at all. We do a lot of events. We do a lot of amazing executions at them. And we haven't lost that creativity or entrepreneurial touch to it. But it is important that, you know, as brands evolve, so must your the way that you communicate. Uh, uh, because you're actually talking to, to sort of more people and, and, you know, you can't ignore them. As the brand evolves, the way you have to communicate with consumers also evolves. I think it's, it's vital. And I think the world is moving in such a way that it, it, is, it is very, very helpful uh, in the, you know, in the way that we can communicate it and our, and our tone of voice and the, and, the, and the brand personality, which never changes. It's just the platforms upon which we communicate have changed uh, 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 or there are more of them. And if we, we use the philosophy and the values of Smiths, whether they're silversmiths, which was where we got the name from, Fairfax's father's a very famous silversmith and he inspired the name for us. And if you use the same values as smithery, you're more likely to stand the tests of time. Uh, this is not about, um, you know, just, you know, riding trends. This really is about sailing through them. And you may not ride the top of the wave and you may not 
they reach the bottom. But it is just about plain sailing and just navigating a, a path of confidence around the future and making sure that people know that you are going to be around and it is your intent to be around for 200 years. When you set that ambition a long way out, you behave differently about how you build the brand, about how you recruit to build the brand, how you talk about the brand, how you live the brand. We're not trying to re- ride flavor waves or do anything hyper different or you know super creative. This is really a relatively simple formula of authenticity and belief in the long term that you know we why we established the brand in the first place is as relevant nine and a half years ago as it will be we hope in 200 years time. I love this. I love the thought of sailing through trends and just the mind shift that happens when you are thinking that you're in it for the long haul and you're not just trying to like, bam, be successful out the gate. So let's talk about the nitty gritty of gin distilling. Can you just explain for anyone who has no background, how is gin distilled? And why are copper pots important? Certainly, yes. Uh, um, you would take uh, a base spirit. So this is a grain spirit, a wheat-based spirit. Typically, you can get potato-based. So you make alcohol out of anything from starch, and, and the majority of global gin distillers don't make their base alcohol. And that, again, it goes back to the uh, 17th, 18th century gin laws where you weren't allowed to make your own base spirit. Uh, um, and so we have a base spirit made from... For us, it's an English winter wheat that's distilled, uh, and we call it our canvas. And that spirit goes into our pot still. We have four pot stills. We have constance, patience, prudence, and verity. I love that you've named well, your stills. Cool. They're so important. <laughs> they're personalities, and they, they play such vital roles. So, so we would take our base spirit, as I said, we call it a canvas. That's what an artist would use to, typically. And so we put that canvas into the pot, and we'll put a botanicals in. And botanicals are typically dried ingredients that still retain compounds and essences that through the process of distillation, you're looking to extract in, uh, uh, and marry into the final distillate yield. Okay, so apply a heat to, a, 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 to the base, which is around about 40% alcohol by volume. And you'd have left those botanicals for a for about a day to macerate and steep and all these lovely flavors get out into the spirit. You'll apply a gentle heat. Alcohol's boiling point is lower than water. It's 78 degrees. And at that point, it bubbles away and converts from its liquid to its vapor state. And as it does that, it leaves behind properties of impurity. Uh, um, not all of them, but it, it does. And in doing so, but it, but it takes with it the flavors that have been imparted with it. For, for, for a day or so and it, and it journeys up as vapour does it hot vapour rises and as it rises it interacts with copper and there's something magical that happens with this wonderful metal uh, um, because there's a chemical reaction that takes place it extracts as I said sulphurs and fatty acids and it smooths the spirit on its journey and it will rise up through this what's known as a helmet and then the swan's neck and the swan's neck is where the vapour will turn and head towards the condenser and every pot still will have a swan's neck and that's why we've brought the swan life on the Sipsmith label. Yeah, you guys on the, the Sipsmith logo, as just Google it, you'll see this beautiful swan. It ties directly to what you guys do. Okay, so here's the question. How much did you know when you decided to start this company? Or was it just like, I see a void, now let me learn? I saw a void, now let me learn. Um, but I 
uh, um, I, I went on a distilling course. I mean, it was only a week's course. It was just to get the basics. It wasn't so that I would end up doing it in North Fairfax. And that's why we were blessed to know Jared, who, you know, recruited a team around him uh, to uh, 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 to craft the gin. So, no, didn't know a great deal about it before, but before we raised money, before we went to market, we, we had to convince people that we had a fundamental understanding about what it is. And it's actually as simple as it is, it's actually incredibly complex. And, and the slightest change in sort of atmospheric pressure or temperature or, um, you know, a, 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 an imbalance of botanical in the recipe, you know, it changes everything. We celebrate that in a way by putting all these batch numbers on every one of our bottles so that every batch might vary very, very slightly. And that's the right of a smith. You know, you have this ability to be able to release, you know, one goblet, a set of goblets that are designed on the eye to look the same. But actually, when you get up close under the microscope, they're actually different. And and the smith himself or herself won't want each one of them to look the same because they have this wonderful, unique sort of DNA to them. Yeah, the artistry behind the product. So now, 10 years in, how has your role evolved? What what is your day-to-day now? So the first phase of entrepreneurialism for us was was about hands dirty, grit, do-it-yourself, no holiday, you work through the evening... It's, it's, it's challenging stuff and, and you're doing it yourself and you're going around with screwdrivers and you're tightening all the all the bolts uh, of the business um, with customers and then um, and then the next bit you know you're supposed to sort of let go a little and you know have a recruited team around you which we, we just couldn't uh, um, but we still got a team and they were probably incredibly frustrated by our management style which was just you know one of total protection and, and guardianship but they were frankly just as good if not better than us and actually now where we are is we've, we've evolved so we now have, as all the books advise you, for goodness sake, when you can afford it, recruit people that are better than you to do the job. So, Sam, how do you keep it quirky? Have fun while you do it, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, I think we can all take life and our roles in life and work a little too seriously. And I think we've been so guilty of that in the past, which is why we have a minister of fun in the company. What? We have a minister of fun. <laughs> and their, their job is to create an environment of entertainment and stimulation. And Is this this person's entire job? No, they do a series of other things okay, as well. Okay, okay. We, we have a minister of fun. That's amazing. We have a minister of culture uh, and they are in charge. They work very closely together. They're, you know, they're, they're more than HR, you know, rather dryly. That probably would be the core discipline that sits under culture. But, you know, it's actually about understanding the Right now, I think about everything that Sipsmith has done, is doing. I think that is the number one thing, is is uh, our drive to create you know, an epic workplace where people can have fun and belong to something. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Great pleasure. Thanks again to Sam Galsworthy. If you have not tried Sipsmith, it is delicious gin. If you're in the mood for a gin and tonic, give it a go. Thanks as always to my brother Brian Quinn for this very awesome theme song you hear. I will see you all not next week, but very soon in about a month's time. Until then, don't forget to keep it quirky. 